This morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 15. If you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles, it's page 852. If you're new with us, my name is Hugh and I'm one of the pastors here. I have the joy of getting to lead our small groups and our core classes. Um, And if you are new, you need to know that we are a Southern Baptist church. And one of the things that I am most proud of about being a Southern Baptist is our denominational zeal to take the gospel to the nations. We don't just sing of it here, but we want to go to those that are cut off from having that hope. We want to go to those that have never heard the name. And I love the way our denomination cooperates together. And this time of year, every Christmas, we have something called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. Lottie was a a Baptist fireball a hundred years ago. She had a passion for those that were living in darkness. She went to China and she made much of Christ and she would write letters back to her home, home, home church. And this is how you can be a part, church. This is what you can do, church. And her passion spread from this little church to now 40-something thousand Southern Baptist churches. We've got a video we're going to show about how you can be a part of taking the gospel to the nations. We're going to take up Lottie Moon offerings all through the the month of December. You should have in the pew back in front of you an envelope marked Lottie Moon. Uh, I challenge you, encourage you to prayerfully consider how God might be calling you to give so that those that are cut off, so that those that that are living in darkness can hear the gospel. And I stand before you one that has directly benefited 
from this offering. I was able to serve in East Asia for two years out of college because faithful local churches like this one gave. It's a big deal and it's important. Let's turn our attention to Mark 15. Mark 15. Before we do, let's, let's pray together. Our Father God, thank you so much for the love with which you have loved us. Not an empty, sentimental love, but an effectual love. A love that, that cost you dearly, your Son. And Jesus, we thank you that you have not loved us from afar, but you have loved us from near, from close. And we celebrate this day and this time of year that you are Emmanuel, God with us. And we thank you, Spirit, that you have indwelt us, that you are the one that corrects us of sin and you teach us the truth of what Christ taught. And so we do pray for your help this morning, Spirit, that you would give us eyes to see your word, the beauty of it, the truth of it, to see the, maj the majesty, the beauty of Christ above all things, and that by your power you would free us from the bonds of sin and idolatry, that we will run hard after you. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're going to see where Jesus stands before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. This account is covered in all four of the Gospels. Mark is by far the shortest. He's most succinct. And so we'll draw upon the other Gospels to get the full story. My job this morning. I want to do a brief summary of the text, and then I want to draw three applications about Jesus. Make three applications. Let's read the text together, starting in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, 
crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. I want to make sure that we pick up on the chronology of what's happening in this text. When you read the Gospels, it covers two or three years, so it's a lot of time. A lot of time gets skipped over, but in these last couple of chapters, chapter 14 and 15, we're not covering days or weeks or months, we're covering hours. Okay? Mark is slowing down to give us much detail. The night before, Jesus had sat with his disciples. They had their, the last Passover meal. He instituted the Lord's Supper. It was then that he went to the garden to pray, Lord, not my will but yours be done. Judas betrays him. He's arrested by a legion of Roman soldiers. He's brought before the Sanhedrin, all the religious leaders, the high priests, the chief priests, the, the scribes. They find him guilty of blasphemy. And now in the very early morning hours, just as the sun is coming up, they bring him before Pilate. What these chief priests wanted more than anything was to kill Jesus. But they did not have the authority to do so. They're under Roman captivity, so they did not have the ability, the legality to exercise capital punishment. So they needed the Roman sword to do what they wanted. And so here it is, sunrise on the next day, and they're brought, they bring Jesus before Pontius. Now Pontius was the Roman governor of Palestine. He was appointed by the emperor. He lived in Caesarea along the Mediterranean coast, but he would always come to Jerusalem for the Passover because there would be such an influx of Jews. He needed to be there to make sure to maintain the peace. His presence was required there. In fact, his, pretty much his biggest job was to keep the peace. This is why Rome had him in place. Rule the people, keep them happy, but at all costs, keep the peace. So in many ways, he's a man with two masters. He answers to the emperor, keep the peace. At all costs, keep the peace. But in order to keep the peace, he, he can't be a, a cruel, heartless dictator. He's got to give some concessions and, and keep the, the crowd in line. Now, it's clear what's happening. They've brought Jesus in, and they've, they've already prepared Pontius for what's happening. And besides, Pontius would know who Jesus is. His fame had gone wide. And so Pontius asked right away, are you the king of the Jews? This is a crucial question for Pilate to ask. He could care less about charges of blasphemy. He could care less about charges of healing on the Sabbath. None of those things matter to him at all. This is the, the story we get from John 18. Pilate said to them, says to the chief priest, he says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And they reveal their motivation. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So they don't go to him with these accusations of blasphemy. They, they don't go to him saying, this man claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God. No, they say, this man claims to be a king. Now this is going to land on Pilate's ears uh, very carefully. He would be well accustomed to, to rebels. No one likes to live under the rule of a foreign thumb. 
And Israel had many different uprisings, many different kind of insurrectionists. And so Pilate asks, are you a king, the king of the Jews? He's effectively asking, are you some kind of political revolutionary? Are you trying to free your people from Roman control? Are you challenging Rome? This is what he asks. Now, Jesus has been misunderstood by everyone, and probably most so by his disciples. Everywhere he went, they wanted to crown him king. And the kind of king they wanted to crown him was be one that would remove them from Roman control, set up a kingdom here and now, and give us freedom. And time and time again, he would disappoint the crowd because that was not his mission. So don't miss the terrible irony here. He has refused to be the kind of king everyone wanted, and yet he is now being accused of being that kind of king. He is no political insurgent. Are you the king of the Jews? His reply is, you have said so. This is an answer in the affirmative. It's not to be understood as kind of the shrugging, uh, if you say so. He's not dodging anything. Yes, I am king of the Jews. And Jesus would know exactly what this meant for him. To say to this Roman governor, yes, I am king of the Jews. So then verse 3 begins, it continues saying, the chief priest began to accuse him of all these many things. Our text in Mark doesn't say, so what are these many things? Luke 23, and they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. It's evident that Jesus has, has says nothing in reply to these many, these many accusations because Pilate asks, Aren't you going to defend yourself? Don't you hear what they're accusing you of? Don't you hear what they're saying? Now this exchange is the mirror image of what happened the night before when Jesus was on trial before the, the religious leaders. It's just uh, in, in opposite order. Mark 14, 60-62. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, You have no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent. And made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So when asked in both of these accounts, Are you the Christ? Are you the King of the Jews? Yes, is his clear and definitive answer. But any other accusation, any lesser charge... He made no reply. He's silent. So Pilate asks, are you the king? Jesus affirms that he is, and he's silent about the rest. And the text says, Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. This has been my prayer for all of you this week, that you would be amazed at Jesus. Whether you have been walking with Jesus, been saved for years, decades even. Be amazed at this king. And if you've never once placed faith in the God of the Bible, this King Jesus, I pray that by faith you would be amazed in who he is, what he has done. This has been my prayer. 
Now we see in verse 6 that Pilate had this long-standing custom. It's the Passover. We're celebrating your deliverance, your exodus out of Egyptian captivity. So we have a tradition. I'm going to release for you one prisoner. So it's just a, a show of good faith, perhaps a means to secure favor so that people would like him. We read in verse 6, Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. Now, we don't know who Barabbas is. We don't know the nature of this insurrection from our text. But Mark's use of the rebels and the insurrection, it's plain that, that his readers in this time, they would know exactly what this is about. The Jews hated being under Rome's thumb, and these men had tried to revolt. In Roman eyes, Barabbas is a terrorist, a man trying to overthrow the government. And so when the crowd comes, are you going to do for us what you normally do every year? Are you going to release a prisoner? This is the perfect out for Pilate. He's, he clearly sees that Jesus is not this political insurgent. He can see plainly that he's not trying to overthrow any kind of government. And so he says, this is a way for me to get off the hook. I'm going to appeal to the crowds, to the masses. I'm going to give you all what you want. And I know you're going to pick Jesus because of his popularity, his fame. And so he says, he says, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Well, the chief priests had stirred up the crowd. So they call for Barabbas instead. Some have argued that the crowd, it, it was comprised only of Barabbas' followers. Well, if this were the case, then the chief priest would not have to stir up anything. You can see their, their evil motivation. So then Pilate again pleads for Jesus' innocence. Then what shall I do with this man you call king of the Jews? The cry from the crowd, having now become a lynch mob, is crucify. Pilate again, why? What evil has he done? Parenthetically, he has done nothing. He does not deserve this. Shouts again, crucify, crucify. So it's time for Pilate to make a decision. He knows that he either has to uphold justice and use his authority to free Jesus, whom he believes to be innocent, or he's to satisfy the crowd. And our text is plain. Verse 15, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd and save his own skin, he could not have a rebellion rise up. It would cost him his own life. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Three things he does. Releases Barabbas, he scourges Jesus and delivers him to be crucified. This, this scourging, it would be, the prisoner would be tied to a post with his hands around the post or up high perhaps. There would be two men on either side with whips that have four or five ends. And in the end of the whip would be pieces of lead or glass or bone where they would, he would be whipped in his shoulders and his back and his ribs, his torso and these these whips, they were designed to shred the body into ribbons. It was quite uh, common for the 
the person to die from the scourging. This is, uh, this is no gift of mercy from Pilate, hoping that the Jews would be satisfied with a mere scourging and not go on to crucify. He, he washes his hands of him and does his, his evil work. I want us to now turn to three points about Jesus. And in similar fashion to Pilate, I want you to be amazed. First point, if you're taking notes, be amazed at his kingship. Be amazed at his kingship. And it is for certain the issue of kingship that has brought Jesus to be in front of Pilate. Are you the son of God? Are you the king of the Jews? Now John's, gives a, John's gospel gives us more insight into this conversation. And in summary, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And you say that I'm a king, and you're right. For this purpose I was born, and for this person, this purpose I have come into the world. This is not the cry of a military leader. This is the cry of a, of a humble king sent from the Father. A king promised from centuries of old. And sadly, these religious leaders of Israel do not see it. Even though they were to be people of the book, to know the law, they missed it. God had made a covenant with David that one of his descendants would be an eternal king. 2 Samuel 7, 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Daniel and his vision of the Son of Man, which was itself Jesus' favorite title for himself, adds to this description of the eternal king in Daniel 7. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is why we need to give to Lottie Moon. This is why we need to support missionaries. Why we need to go ourselves because our king is an international king. See the inclusive language. All peoples, all nations, all languages. An eternal king. This is the king who we celebrate this time of year in Isaiah 9. For us for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is the kind of king that Jesus is. Be amazed at it. All through the Old Testament, the idea of a king carried with it the imagery of being a shepherd. In Ezekiel 34, God is laying waste to the so-called shepherds of that day. That they cared nothing for the people. They cared only for themselves. And so he makes this stunning promise to Israel. And he says, I will set up over them one shepherd my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. And so Jesus says in, in John 10, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is the kind of king that Jesus is, eternal 
international, merciful, lay down his life. He is glorious and sovereign. Be amazed at this king. His claim of kingship is true and absolute, and his authority knows no end. Therefore, we must obey him. But know this, we're only able to obey because he's not the kind of king that he's being accused of. He's not a rebel. He's submissive to his father. He's not an evil dictator ruling from afar, cruelly punishing subjects of his kingdom for transgression. No, he is a loving, self-giving king who has come near to his people. Be amazed. By mercy, by God's grace, bow the knee to this king now. He's silent. This king is silent in our text this morning, but one day his silence will end and he will speak a final judgment. A judgment far more just than Pilate's. Bow the knee now. He is an eternal just king. Secondly, I want you to be amazed at his innocence. Be amazed at his innocence. In the face of so many accusations, aren't you going to answer these charges against you? Pilate says. Jesus makes no reply. All he had to do was get Pilate on his side. All he had to do was call some witnesses in his favor. But he did not. He didn't raise even a single objection to these lies. Isaiah 53 prophesies it perfectly. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is utterly unique, not just in this room, in this courtroom scene here, but in all of human history. None of us here know what perfection is like. The best of us, we're colored, we're stained by unfaithfulness and broken lives. This is why Isaiah said that our righteousness is like filthy rags. Why Paul in Romans 3 says that there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. This is the human condition, universally true. All of humanity stands guilty before God. And because of our guilt, we are the objects of God's righteous wrath. He's not like a sleepy old grandfather that winks at sin. If he is holy, then he cannot tolerate sin. We're born into this kind of spiritual rebellion against God's law, and if not for God's mercy, then hell would be the reality for us all. In the midst of these religious leaders, in the midst of Pilate, in the the crowd, All morally bankrupt stands Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, the only innocent one, the righteous one scrutinized by the unrighteous. And let it be clear to you that Jesus was not duped. He was not tricked in some kind of courtroom thing. He was silent so that it would be clear that he is giving his life. It was not taken from him. He wasn't trapped. Again, John 10 says, No one takes my life, but I lay it down of my own accord. 
I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Though he was totally innocent, he was rejected. Rejected by the religious leaders, rejected by these that should be pointing all of Israel to their king. And though his innocence is clear to Pilate, Pilate lets lets it happen. He's rejected by the crowd as well. How could they pick Barabbas? A man known for murder, a man known for rebellion. Here's the reason. Sinners hate righteousness. That's, that's why Barabbas was picked. It's like when you're sound asleep in a pitch black, black, black room and someone flips on the, on the light. It's pierce. It pierces you. It hurts. It's so bright. All you want to do is turn it off. Get the light away. And this is again clear in, in the Gospel of John. And this is the judgment. that The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. They could not stand him because of his perfection. It made their sin feel all the worst. So they made a willful decision to choose over Jesus. But don't we do the same thing? Don't we choose our own Barabbas when we run headlong after sex and power and money over him? We also make intentional decisions to choose things contrary to the word. He was rejected by the chief priests, by the Roman governor, by the crowd, and he's rejected by us as well. Again, Isaiah 53 paints the picture perfectly. God is not surprised by any of this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Be amazed at Jesus' innocence. Thirdly, I want you to be amazed in his substitution. Be amazed in his substitution. I want you to notice how this passage is, has bookends. Verse 1 begins, And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Then in verse 15, Pilate delivered him to be crucified. This expression of being handed over or delivered over is is repetitive and it's intentional in Mark's gospel. We see in in chapter 3, verse 19, Judas delivering Jesus in betrayal. 9.31, Jesus delivered into the hands of sinful men. 10.33, Jesus delivered to the chief priests and again, delivered to the Gentiles. What's the point of all this? Everyone is guilty. We all have our part. We all have bloodstained hands in delivering Jesus up. And yet, behind all this delivering of Jesus by sinful men lies the divine necessity in which God himself delivers up his son. Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And again, going back to Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Both the, men, the hands of men and of God are pushing Jesus to this point. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Barabbas in this moment? He hears some commotion outside. 
Guards come in and they free him. You're free to go, Barabbas. What? How can this be? The only answer that can be given is that Jesus is your substitute. The one they call the king of the Jews has taken your place. He has been delivered to be crucified. This idea of the death of a substitute is all throughout the scriptures. What happens in in Genesis 3? Adam and Eve fall and they make for themselves covering out of fig leaves to cover their nakedness and their shame. And the chapter ends that God himself makes a covering for them out of animal skin. Something had to die so that their shame and their nakedness would be covered. The first Passover, the blood of a lamb painted on the doorposts. The lamb had to die so that those in the house would live. The entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Priests would confess the sins of Israel over the the head of a lamb before it was killed. And then another lamb or a goat would be released into the wilderness. The picture of the sin being satisfied and then also taken far away. Every Passover meal, this, this idea of death by a substitute would be rehearsed time and time again. And we saw here in Mark that three weeks ago at the last Passover meal, Jesus gave greater and deeper and fuller understanding of this meal and saying that, that this, is, this is about me. This is about my broken body and my spill, spilled blood on your behalf. And so here again, an innocent one will die in the place of of the wicked. Be amazed at Jesus and his substitution. He was willingly condemned so that we would never be. He was willingly judged so that we could be declared innocent. This is not just good news for Barabbas, but this is our hope. This is our only hope. This morning, if you feel face to face with your sin and you feel the guilt and shame of it, Look to Jesus, the one who has given his life in your place and in mine. This is what the the Bible teaches. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I think the most precious truth in all the scriptures. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is stunning. This is what the Reformers called the great exchange. It's great. You take all of your sin and your shame and you put it on Jesus, and he gives you all of his perfect righteousness. It's it's absurd, but it's good news. It's amazing news. Be amazed at this kind of innocent king that willingly lays down his life for you. This morning, we're going we're gonna to take the Lord's Supper together. What we are doing is enacting our faith. We're putting the gospel into pictures. Okay? We're going to reach out and take a piece of bread that's a, that's a picture of of Jesus' body broken. And we're going to reach out and take a cup of, of juice that is a picture of his blood. We do this because it's an enactment 
of what he has made true of us, that we are now vitally, forever given union with Christ. Now, Paul gives instructions about how to take of this table in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then there's a warning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. If this is a picture of the gospel, if it's a picture of what is happening right now in you, then this, this table is only for those that, that are professing faith and walking with Jesus. Now, in examining yourself, I want you to ask yourself the same question that, that Pilate asked Jesus. Is Jesus king? I paused when I was reading this, this word of warning from Paul and saying, this is my body which is for you. I want that to fall heavy on you. This is for you. This is, this is not for, um, for the perfect. We've seen clearly that there's only one perfect one in all of human history. The good news is the gospel is for sinners. And this table is for sinners. For sinners that say, I am by faith reaching out and taking a broken body and spilled blood, which is for me because it's my only hope. If that is your profession, then you are welcome to come to the table. But if you answer the question of, is Jesus king? With, well, there are, there's a lot of rebels right now rising up in my heart. Before you come to this table, confess those sins. Throw those idols off and look by faith to Jesus. A king that was innocent, laid down his life for you, and know that all those things, they are passing pleasures that only Jesus can satisfy, only Jesus can give life. And know with full assurance that if you are in Christ, once you have repented of those sins, Paul says in Romans 8 that there is now, therefore, no condemnation. Christ has taken it all. So take time to pray. Examine yourself. And worship together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are amazing.
we confess that you are king. We confess that you are the perfect, spotless lamb, innocent in all things. And though we are so wretched, though we fall short, each and every day, moment by moment, we know that you have loved us because you laid down your life. And so, Father, by the power of your Spirit, where there is idolatry and stronghold in our hearts, break it and remove the veil from our eyes that we would see you, Jesus, as you are, glorious and satisfying and life-giving more than any other thing. Jesus, we are amazed that you are our substitute, that you stood condemned in our place. And to respond to such extravagant love, we want to worship you, not just in this moment, but with all of our days. For surely you are a king who is worth it. And we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.